Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, March 19th, and we're chatting SPACs. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's supreme speculation specialists of specific stakes in SPAC structures, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, happy Friday to you. Happy St. Paddy's Day week to you. Happy NCAA college basketball to you. Brian, happy SPAC day to you. <laughs> there's so much going on, uh, and it's and it's fun. There's, there's some great energy. Um, I think if there were... If there was a four-letter acronym to capture the market in the last year, it was probably probably SPAC. I, I think it's probably the easiest way to do it. There have been so many SPACs. There's been an explosion of SPACs over the last uh, six months. It seems like every time I turn around, there's another SPAC that we have to check out and learn about. Uh, today's SPAC uh, was sent to me by a Twitter message by a follower named uh, Tua Lumni. Uh, he put this on my radar. He said, hey, this looks interesting. Check it out. I checked it out, saw a couple of big name investors that I am familiar with, sent it on to you. Here we are talking about it. So thank you for the suggestion. The wisdom of the crowds and the strength of the community. We talk about it all the time when it comes to you know relaxing a little bit when things are getting crazy in the markets, but it's also a great source of ideas for us. It really is. And there's a lot to be excited about uh, this name. As I said, some big name uh, backers, including the recent king of SPACs, uh, Chamath Palapatia. Uh, his name is all over this thing. So that, that right there is a good start. Yeah. So uh, you're going to have to follow a couple different names as we run through this discussion, listeners. There's Revolution Acceleration Acquisition Corp., which is currently listed on the NASDAQ, R-A-A-C. And they are acquiring the company that we're going to be kicking the tires on for today's show. And that's Berkshire Gray. And Brian, to our knowledge, no relation. To our knowledge, <laughs> Dylan, no relation to Warren Buffett's monstrous company, Berkshire Hathaway. So yes, uh, this this company, uh, the SPAC has already been uh, announced of its target. The estimated close is sometime in the second quarter of this year. You can invest in this company today by buying shares of Revolution Acceleration Acquisition Corp, RAAC. We didn't see what the ticker is going to be, although I think it's going to be BG, but we'll just have to find that out once the SPAC is finalized. Yep. A lot of details still to come on this one. But yes, to your point, if, if, if you're interested after listening to this one, you can get shares. It's not like one of those prospectus shows uh, where the shares have not yet hit the public markets. Because of the SPAC approach, uh, they're already out there, even though the deal hasn't quite closed yet. Um, and there are some big, big names behind this one uh, in, in a lot of different ways. I think the leadership team uh, is, is incredibly... Uh, tenured in the space they're focusing on, which is you know automation and robotics. But the backers financially on the deal, also uh, some really big names. Yeah. When you see a SPAC, you definitely want to see that other big name investors are in it, and they're going to be continuing to continue their investments uh, post-SPAC. That's what we're seeing, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, so some names that uh, listeners might know, uh, Kosla uh, Ventures, uh, they are an investor here. Uh, SoftBank Group, they are an investor here. As I said, uh, Chamath's uh, company, uh, Social Capital, uh, they're an investor here. And what really flew off the page to me when I was quickly reading through this company's presentation uh, was uh, one of the co-founders of the SPAC, Revolution Acceleration, is Steve Case. If that name sounds familiar, he's the co-founder of a little outfit called AOL. Yeah. 
Yeah, he is he is someone that, you know, if you've been following the internet at all over the past couple of decades, uh, you've likely uh, come into. And, and he's really interesting guy. I, I've seen him personally at South by Southwest speak. Um, he always has plenty of interesting things to say about uh, things online and kind of the nature of where investment is going with the internet. Um, the more I spent with this company, the more I kind of understood why they're putting some money into this business. There are a lot of tailwinds here. Um, and, and it is, while it sounds like more of a manufacturing uh, and machinery-oriented business, one that dovetails very nicely with e-commerce. Yeah, and you wouldn't know that from the name of the company, would you? Berkshire Gray. I mean, they could be selling anything. Uh, but what the company is really focused on is robotics uh, in warehouses. So right from their uh, slide deck, they say, quote unquote, we help retail, e-commerce, grocery, package handling companies to transform so that they can compete, grow, and win in the modern uh, economy. So this is a company that is focused on robotics in warehouses. If that sounds familiar, that's something that Amazon has been doing for about a decade now. Uh, Amazon acquired a company called Kiva Systems over 10 years ago, and they have been pouring billions into their own robotic uh, capabilities. Uh, Berkshire Gray really helps essentially Everybody not named Amazon to compete. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was looking through the slides on their presentation, and they make the point pretty cleanly. They're like, Amazon is setting the standard for warehouse operations and consumer expectations. If you're not matching it, you're falling behind. That's, that's basically the thesis, right? Is that you have this industry titan who is heavily invested here, and I think in a matter of five or 10 years, totally transformed what people expect from e-commerce companies, logistics companies, how quickly they get their packages, all of these things. And it becomes something that goes from a competitive advantage, Brian, to basically table stakes for the industry. Yeah, and right now, the industry, again, everybody not named Amazon, is woefully far behind on the robotics front. Uh, Berkshire Gray points out uh, that over 90% of current uh, e-commerce orders are fulfilled manually, and only 5% of warehouses have any sort of automation uh, in them. Uh, that's a big problem, because not only have we seen explosive demand for e-commerce growth, which necessitates huge growth in warehouse, uh, but most of that growth is done through through manual operations. Uh, that provides labor challenges. When you are uh, introducing labor to the picture, uh, it's much more expensive, and that's harder to scale, uh, too. Uh, Berkshire Gray helps companies to solve many of those challenges head-on. Yeah, and so what we are really looking at here is kind of this comprehensive and coordinated AI-based robotics approach to your supply chain. That is the core offering that they are giving to their customers. Um, and they position themselves as a pure play robotics business. Uh, they say they are software enabled. We're, we're having a little bit of a hard time, Brian, digging into exactly what the revenue base looks like for them um, and, and where the money is coming from right now. We'll get into the financials a little bit. But it is one of those businesses that there's a hardware element, there's a software element down the road. You could see the software element becoming very attractive, particularly with the gross margins. Yes, the company has invested in its own proprietary technology to handle all facets of the warehouse for fulfillment. Uh, so they are building their own uh, robots. They have their own sensing systems. They have their own gripping systems, their own machine vision systems. 
all of that is going to be worked together seamlessly with their AI, with their software, uh, which is powered by AI. And as they say, also links directly with companies' existing uh, technology stacks. So that is the software package that they have put together. What's interesting too, is this company was founded in 2013 and was basically in stealth mode uh, for over five years, just building the technology uh, behind the scenes. They've built up over a, pack, a group of over 300 patents and they really made a push into the consumer space or to actually get their product out there just a few years ago. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, they've made some significant progress already. They have, and, and they have a deep IP library, over 300 patent filings uh, protecting what they are doing and what they are offering. Um, the core offering for them is basically this fully integrated solution. And so they're offering the hardware, they're offering the, sof the software. And I, I think while it is something that probably takes a little bit longer to install than, than some of the other systems that are currently out there, it is meant to work together much more cleanly than probably some of the more simply software-based solutions that are out there, Brian. And they do have some data out there that shows that working with them uh, is a good deal. They basically point out that one of their Berkshire Gray systems, uh, when implemented, will replace eight manual pickers and hundreds of case handlers. It's also designed to be uh, highly scalable, so it can be rolled out across uh, your, your network. And using them increases efficiency, uh, increases speed, increases accuracy, greatly reduces your uh, your labor costs. And they say that if you, uh, the typical payback period for a customer is to get their all of their return on investment back in two or three years. They don't provide hard numbers to back that up, uh, but given the cost savings of it, I can see that being accurate. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And and if you're listening to us describe this and you say, well, this, this sounds like an expensive thing to install, um, you're right to some extent. I mean, this is this is the type of solution that only works for businesses of a certain scale. And you look at the customers that they highlight so far, Walmart, Target, FedEx, TJX. I think that does a good job, Brian, of showing the industries that, that make a ton of sense for this type of, of service, but also the, the budgets that you tend to be working with when you're looking at this part of the market. That is a huge credibility boost to my mind to say that this company is only a few years old, has only been selling for a few years, and they've already landed Walmart, Target, and FedEx as customers. This strategy reminds me very much of Palantir. Palantir was kind of in the shadows for a while. They've spent all this time on uh, security and they landed the U.S. government and they use that and they use that uh, anchor customer to kind of sell the rest of the industry. And as we've seen, that's a successful strategy. So I really like that they have already nailed down Target, Walmart, and FedEx's customers. That will likely be a halo effect that kind of accelerates this company's growth uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I think if you couldn't be embedded with Amazon in, in this world, Walmart's probably the next best one, right? Like what, what we're looking at here is a very challenging uh, problem with the sheer number of products that a lot of these retailers have. The SKU counts are wild. The expectations on when things are actually fulfilled are incredibly aggressive on the consumer side. If you can operate on their scale and make sense, it's going to make sense down the road for other retailers as well. Um, that, that sampling of customers we looked at, Brian, very retail heavy, uh, some logistics in there with FedEx, uh, a couple other categories they identify on their roadmap, um, grocery uh, and parcels as well. Uh, a lot of them facing kind of similar challenges to, to what you'd see within e-commerce and retail. For sure. And one other thing that's nice to note about those customers is when you look at just Walmart alone, I mean, it has 
thousands of stores uh, around around the globe, not to mention the warehouse. It has an incredibly complicated uh, supply chain. So if Berkshire Gray can get their foot in their door with them, prove some early success, that is a customer that they can grow with for decades to come. So that is a really big positive. In terms of what the books look like now, Brian, uh, we put out some big customer names. The revenue number might be a little surprising to people. $35 million in revenue in 2020. A huge chunk of what uh, the story is, really, for this business is what it will become, not really what it is right now. And that's not too surprising. Again, this company was in stealth mode for five years and only really started to take on customers uh, about two years ago. So getting to $35 million in revenue is not that surprising. Plus, which customers did they land now? Again, Walmart, Target, FedEx. Can you imagine how challenging it must have been to get those customers to sign on the dotted line to get this to give Berkshire Gray a try? That must have taken a year or more. So, having 35 million in revenue last year is actually a pretty impressive number given the early strategy. The tricky thing there is we only know we don't know the exact breakdown of that number. We don't know how much was hardware sales. We don't know how much was software sales. We do know that the gross margin not that impressive. About eight percent uh, so so far. This is a company that if you're going to buy today, it's not because of what they've done. It's because what they say they're going to do. Yeah, and, and a huge part of it is going to be, you know, continuing to grow with these anchor customers that they've identified and they find to be very important. But really. Scaling, enjoying operating leverage, adding new customers, and building onto what they already have. Robotics as a service is a really big part of that. Value add services is something they identify further out. But this is kind of a, a recurring theme that we see with SPACs, Brian, right? Just the nature of SPACs and, and kind of what that process allows businesses to do. A lot of the story here is forward looking and the numbers that this business is throwing out when you get to 2023, 2024, 2025, they get big fast. There are some ambitious goals here for this business. This is a company that is on record saying we essentially expect to double our top line every year. They're calling for 99% a compound annual growth rate uh, over the next uh, five years. They do have some of that already booked. The company did note that it has taken in $114 million uh, in orders uh, to date. And their pipeline with their the, their visibility pipeline that they see over the next couple of years is uh, is at $1.7 billion. But make no mistake, they this is a company that is expected to grow its top line tremendously over the next uh, five years. And while they're doing that, they have given us some gross margin guidance. They're at 8% gross margin today. They do say within the next five years, as their product mix shifts, they expect to grow that number to 48%. So that's going to be tremendous growth if they can achieve that. But this isn't software-like margins that we're used to seeing from software-as-a-service businesses. Yeah, I feel like in the early days with a lot of software-as-a-service businesses, even on relatively uh, low revenue basis, you start to see the margin profile emerge. In this case, operating leverage and scale are going to be a huge part of whether or not that happens. They are looking out at 2025 and saying, we think we could have 920 million in revenue by that year. So so that, that gross margin of getting up into the 40% range, it's going to be on a very large revenue base if the story holds. 
a lot of things are going to have to go right for that to happen. But I think the the core thing that I want to emphasize here for folks that are potentially interested in this business is what you are buying today in terms of a financial model looks totally different than what the business expects to be in four years. For sure. And given that they have a significant portion of their uh, story is going to be the propriety hardware, it's not all that surprising to see a gross margin that's relatively constrained. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me too if this company uh, had some kind of consultant or service uh, business down the road where they customers paid them to implement uh, their their products into the into their uh, warehousing. And if so, we've seen lots of companies do that at a very low margin just to essentially win over uh, the business. But uh, either way, if they can grow at the revenue they say they're going to grow at and expand their margin, uh, there's plenty of gross profit for this company to become profitable, at least on adjusted EBITDA basis. They are saying that by 2024, they expect to post positive uh, adjusted EBITDA, not a metric I like, but it is a metric nonetheless. And we do know that post-IPO, the company is going to have over half a billion dollars in cash on its books and no debt. They believe that 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 their their cash balance uh, after the uh, the IPO or after the SPAC uh, goes through is going to be enough to get the company to cash flow profitability by 2024. Yeah, I and and, and I think to to backtrack some of my skepticism, Brian, uh, I I think that it's it's the nature of looking at these types of businesses in general, right? The, the future story is always going to be what you are truly buying when you're buying shares. Um, this is a business that looks like it has a decent amount of optionality um, between you know getting installed with major players in in the retail space that operate on a massive scale. One credibility, like we talked about, but two, it helps you identify problems that a lot of other businesses are going to have. And once you're installed there as a as a as a supplier, a software solution, it becomes really easy to roll those into what you are offering existing customers. So I I think there's a lot there to like, and maybe that's going to be part of what we see with with margin expansion as well. Um, but it's it's got to materialize. They do see that. And I could also see if you have this kind of system installed on a few of your of your warehouses, if it does indeed work out with Walmart and it is installed everywhere, can you imagine how painful it would be to switch to another provider? So it's very early on now, um, but I could see if this company, if this thesis works out for a couple of years, the switching costs could be enormous. Yeah. And it will surprise no one, but throwing out some big revenue numbers, we have some very large total addressable market and market potential numbers as well, Brian. So the company points out that e-commerce sales in the United States alone last year were $860 billion. A lot of that was obviously COVID-related and saw a huge step forward. Um, this company doesn't see that its TAM is that big, but it's in that ballpark, uh, Dylan. So management believes that its current addressable market opportunity exceeds $2.8 billion dollars. As a reminder, their current backlog of projects, their current pipeline of projects is about $1.7 billion. If this thesis doesn't work out, it's not because the opportunity isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think anyone listening would say, yeah, I, I, I understand why people are interested in this business, right? Just just in your head, count the number of things you've ordered online over the last two months, right? <laughs> like, and think about all the work that goes into making that happen. Any cost savings and any efficiency gains that you can have on any of those individually, then scaled over to a much larger operation. The story really makes sense. That TAM 280 billion totally makes sense. There's a lot there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that for them, it's going to be what what can they roll in to expand margins. Um, I'm really curious on the robotics as a service side of the business. I think that that's where the story gets much more compelling for me. Um, 
And I have to say, looking at the management team here, Brian, I feel like the vision is probably in pretty good hands. Yeah, so as we pointed out right now, uh, the, the management team that we do know is focused on the SPAC, which is, again, co-founded by Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, as well as John Delaney. Uh, he's also an accomplished executive himself. He founded two companies that came public and were acquired before he was 40 years old. That's a heck of a pedigree behind him. Let's talk about Berkshire Gray management team for a second there. Again, lots to like here. Uh, the founder is uh and, and the current ceo is a guy named tom wagner uh he spent years at another successful business called irobot as the cto uh, he also has a background at darpa and uh and honeywell uh the president here is uh is currently uh, excuse me the president and ceo uh, is the former ceo CEO of a company called Intellex, uh, which was a software company that was sold for three quarters of a, of a billion dollars. Uh, the chief scientist uh, was the director of robotics at uh, Carnegie Mellon. That is a top tier school known for uh, robotics. And then the company's board is uh, is very impressive. You have uh, people on there that are going to be from uh, the venture capitalist firms that are going to be partnered with them, uh, SoftBank, Kosla uh, Ventures, as well as former executives at, uh, at Amazon. So, Management team here is really top notch. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is kind of neat, Brian, about the the SPAC approach and you know revolution being in the mix is we get their thesis laid out in presentation format for us. You know, it's one of the slides where they basically just break down like here's why we're investing in this business. Um, and I'll I, I won't go through the entire thing, but just the high level stuff. They say okay, one company is a category creator. Two, it's got industry leading technology. It's hard for you and I to suss that out, but we're kind of taking management at face value and just look at the pedigree and saying, yep, like it looks pretty good. Three, huge market opportunity with trends accelerating, particularly due to the pandemic. Strong growth story backed by a sizable anchor spend from their blue chip customers. So all of those huge social proof points that they have from the existing contracts in place. Asset light business model with potential recurring revenue streams. I think that's one of those things, Brian, we need to see materialize over time. We don't have a good lens into that right now. And then innovation is key to the success of e-commerce and logistics because of companies like Amazon. It's it's a must-have. It's mission critical for a lot of these businesses. And then finally, seven, strong leadership, solid existing customers, and a good board. So that that's kind of what Steve Case and, and team see with this business. I tend to agree with with a lot of their assessments there. I think there's a lot to like. I mean, if you were to just back up and just say what the, the essential core thesis here that you laid out, shortcut could be Amazon is doing robotics. Everybody else has to do robotics. That is a thesis I buy. I mean, it's just as simple, it's simple as that. Uh, 10 years ago, when Ama bought Kiva Systems, which, if memory serves, was for under a billion dollars, I think that that was a brilliant move. At the time, Kiva was the only, was the, was the leader, and Amazon has essentially had a monopoly on that technology for itself. It makes complete sense to me that there has to be a number two provider for everybody else to use. So Berkshire Gray, uh, I, I think if they can prove that they are that, that company, I think the potential here is just massive. You know, Brian, I think when we, when we tend to talk about the best acquisitions of all time, particularly in the tech space, you know, the easy ones that come to mind, Instagram and probably YouTube, right? Just in terms of what they have blossomed into under their parent company. I think Kiva is probably a sleeper in that conversation. I really think it is too. That was a technology. That was a 
financially, it's really hard to quantify what has that done for Amazon. But long-term, uh, strategically, they now, as I said, they now have 200,000 robots, Kiva robots that are deployed across their, their system. That is going to allow Amazon to lower its fulfillment costs faster than everybody else. So yeah, strategically, I think that's going to be proved to be a brilliant acquisition. You mentioned that Berkshire Gray, in terms of thesis, is, you know, if worst case, it's, you know, maybe second best in the space. And that, and for everyone that's not Amazon, they, they become a customer. Um, there are other players investing in the space, I think in part just because the numbers we've talked about, they get big fast and the cost savings are there for your customers. Um, there are a lot of players here and Gray, uh, Berkshire Gray is going to have to prove that it's worth uh, putting money with them instead of a lot of these other uh, players. Yep, the company calls out lots of direct competitors, including Hexagon, Rockwell Automation, Okado Group, MyTech, and Tremble. Uh, these are not small businesses. I mean, Rockwell Automation, for example, has $6 billion in trailing sales as a $30 billion company. On the machine vision side, there's also a company like, uh, like Cognex, or how about even the fact that Shopify has been investing aggressively in its own fulfillment ca uh, capabilities for, for its customers. So there is plenty of competition that this company is going to be squaring off against. I think that the fact that they've already signed up Walmart, Target, and, the, and their bench really gives them an edge, but that will be something that they have to prove over time. Yeah. And, and what we've seen so far is about a $2.7 billion valuation for the uh, taken public version of this business. Um, that's a fraction of the size of some of the competitors that we just talked about. You know, it's a tenth of the size of Rockwell. Um, so there's, there's a different scale that some of those companies are operating on. Uh, for sure, and you, you compare that 2.7 billion dollar uh, valuation to last month's last year's revenue of uh, 35 million. I mean, boy, is that a healthy price to sales ratio? So yeah, if you're investing in this business today, you really have to believe that management is going to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, I'm curious, Brian. Um, this looks a lot different than a lot of the companies that we talk about on the show regularly. Where does it sit for you right now in terms of investable ideas? I think that there's a lot to like about uh, this business. I like, I mean, I'm a, I think the category is a no-brainer uh, for for growth. I like the the management team here. I like the fact that they're shifting to a robotics as a service offering. I could see that being uh, a big deal. I really like that they have nailed down a number of large customers or, or already, and that they're starting to deploy them. I think the company also has lots of revenue uh, visibility to it. So this does check many of the boxes that I look for uh, in in a good investment. Uh, however. Given the stage that the company is in right now, I think that this is more of a radar stock right now and something that you should watch and really see how it performs uh, on the public markets for a little bit. This is a company that if the thesis truly works and you can buy it at when it's at $10 billion valuation, if the thesis works, you're still going to make uh, a heck of a return uh, from there. If it doesn't work, it's going to fall, uh, fall drastically from here. So this is a stock that I will put on my radar and watch it, but I will not be a buyer uh, today. How about you? I, I think I'm kind of looking at it the same way. Um, you know, we, we talk about it with companies that have gone on a big run. You know, when, when you own a stock and you've maybe bought it once and you're looking to buy it again, you have to make that second buy. Um, you know, you're, you're trading uh, the, the price that you're paying for certainty in the investment that you're making, right? And I think this is a business where I would rather have a little bit more certainty 
and where it's going before I start putting money into it. Um, and so the, the things I'll be watching are, you know, do we see them hitting their growth targets for revenue because they're ambitious and, um, that that's a big part of where they say they're going. And then do we start to see margin expansion over time? Because I look at, you know, single digit gross margins and I say, you know, there, there are just a lot of other places to put money that it's, it's easier to see a high gross margin future than this business right now. Totally. But if somebody came to me and said, I want to invest in this company today, I think it has 10x plus potential, boy, would I agree with them. I mean, there's nothing wrong if you want to take a, a swing for the fences and and buy this stock today and really uh, see if it can prove itself out. As I said, there's a lot to like about this business even today. Yeah, you don't have to look far, right? Just look look over to its competitors. That's a 10x right there. You know, If, they, if they're able to match the size of a company like Rockwell um, at some point, and, and this is, I think, to some extent, Brian, where it gets a little bit into risk appetite and, and knowing yourself as an investor. You know, it's, it's okay to sit on the sidelines for something that's high growth and really interesting, but maybe a little bit more anxiety inducing than you want to have in your portfolio. Totally. It depends on what type of investor you are and what you are looking for. But if you're looking for a swing to the fences, this isn't a bad idea. Yeah. And just generally speaking, the world of SPACs, probably a good space to be looking if that's your <laughs> investment style, right? So many choices to choose from, and a lot of them are promising enormous growth at, at quote-unquote, decent valuations today. So how many of them actually fulfill that? Only time will tell. Yeah. And and listeners, if you enjoyed this one and you haven't caught some of the recent episodes that uh, Matt Frankel and Jason Moser have been doing on SPACs, highly suggest you check out their Monday episodes. I think they're doing a four-part series. So you can head over to podcast.fool.com and catch those, or you can get us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. But Brian, we will not be beholden to SPACs. We will talk about other companies as well as they are interesting. Dylan, we'll always talk about awesome businesses. I don't care if it's an S1. I don't care if it's a company that's been in the market for 10 years or SPAC. If it's great, we want to talk about it. Exactly. And I love doing it with you. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. You too, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, just reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.